welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Hey, welcome again to another great edition of the NIDS View. No, I am not Adam Lowther. He is on assignment again this week. It seems like he gets out of the office a lot more than I do, uh, but he has loaned me the big chair and the golden mic, and so we're going to give us a shot here. I have got three extremely special guests today uh, for you all. Uh, they are all broadcasting bright and early from Australia. And so I'm going to uh, introduce them very quickly here. I have Dr. Carl Rhodes, who is a senior fellow here at NIDS. I also have Dr. Christine Lee, also a senior fellow here at NIDS. We are quite the international organization, aren't we? And we have uh, uh, Natalie from Alpha India Consultancy, also down in Australia. This is going to be exciting. We're going to talk about AUKUS today because we kind of feel like we don't know a whole lot about AUKUS up here in the States. This is something I'm sure is very near and dear to our Australian allies and, uh, and to, to your sovereignty and security. We're excited to hear more about it and excited to have you here today. So thanks for being here. Um, Carl, I'm going to start off with you, sir. I think you've got um, uh, a great sort of preamble to get us uh, oriented to what we're going to talk about today. So let me hand the mic over to you. Sounds great. I'll bring us up to speed on what's happening with AUKUS and deterrence down under. Uh, so Australia does not have any nuclear weapons, just a reminder. Uh, but the AUKUS security partnership was announced in September 21 uh, by the leaders of the UK, the United States, and Australia. It was a uh, trilateral announcement. Uh, it's focused specifically on technology sharing. So it isn't necessarily a, you know, we'll jump to your defense partnership. It's all about sharing technology to improve security and improve defense capabilities. The goal, you know, ultimately is to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific that's secure and stable. And they announced two initial pillars of work in that September 21 announcement. Uh, the first pillar was to support Australia in acquiring nuclear subs for the Royal Australian Navy. So these will be nuclear powered, but conventionally armed, as Australia is going to continue to be a non-nuclear weapon state. Uh, and Australia is has committed to working closely with the International Atomic Energy Agency to maintain its non-proliferation obligations under that Pillar 1. There's also Pillar 2, which Natalie is going to talk about in a bit. I'm going to focus on Pillar 1 here. Uh, but Pillar 2 is focused on enhancing joint capabilities in interoperability uh, with efforts initially focused on cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and additional undersea capabilities beyond those subs. So on the day of the announcement, Australia also canceled its longstanding plans to purchase a fleet of 12 what were called attack-class submarines that were supposed to arrive into service in the 2030s. So those were uh, conventionally uh, powered subs. Nuclear-powered options were ruled out early in the program uh, during considerations in the early 2000s. And the, the winner of the competition was a, a French contractor and... While those subs would have been the most capable and lethal conventional subs ever built, uh, 
The leadership here in Australia became convinced that the advantages of nuclear propulsion were needed to confront the growing threat posed by China in the region. Nuclear gives you more speed, gives you a larger range, gives you less need to surface to kind of refresh the air. And there are also some concerns about the ability of the French to deliver on time and within budget. So, so that's kind of the background. Um, with that, I'm going to focus on pillar one and the implications here. And that initial announcement in September of 21 called for 18 months of study about how to execute the plan. Because it's not just hand Australia right. some nuclear-powered subs. There's a lot that goes along with that. Um, and with that plan, uh, we've got to remember that Australia is a nation that has not only no nuclear defense capabilities at the moment, but extremely limited experience with nuclear systems. So Australia's got a third of the world's proven uranium reserves, but nuclear power is currently banned uh, for use in Australia. And the nation only has one nuclear reactor. It's a research reactor based at Lucas Heights. It's mostly used to produce uh, medical isotopes. Uh, It's not used to produce power. So that means that Australia's got to develop a whole regulatory environment around safeguarding operations and maintenance of these nuclear-powered subs, along with a plan for disposal when those subs eventually reach end of life. So all of this is involved in how to get the subs here and get them operational. So a major announcement was made in March of 23. That was the outcome of that 18-month study, and a phased approach was defined for uh, the Royal Australian Navy to acquire the subs. So phase one is happening right now. Australian military and civilians are embedding with the U.S. Navy, the U.K.'s Royal Navy, and at submarine industrial locations to enable training about how to deal with nuclear subs and all that. This uh, phase also includes increased port visits uh, by the U.S. and U.K. to Australia with their nuclear subs. Phase two will come into effect as early as 2027, where the U.S. and U.K. will forward rotate nuclear attack subs, or SSNs, to Australia to accelerate the development of Australian naval personnel, the workforce, the infrastructure, and the regulatory system. There's also thought that maintenance will be performed on those subs here in Australia Mm -hmm. to kind of bring up that learning curve. Early 2030s, the United States will sell Australia at least three and up to five Virginia-class subs. So this was part of the study announcement. Now, what Congress did later on, we're going to talk about and some of the, you know, some of the discussion there. And in the late 2030s, the UK will deliver its first SSN AUKUS class to the Royal Navy and Australia will deliver SSN AUKUS class built here in Australia to the Royal Australian Navy in the early 2040s. So I think the idea is it is uh, mostly developed in the UK and the build will be done here in Australia. Uh, the ultimate goal is a mixed force of eight nuclear, cla- nuclear attack subs. That'll be a mix of the AUKUS class and the Virginia class. Um, and up to four U.S. and U.K. subs will rotate through HMS Sterling. And the agreement is that the first Virginia-class boat would be sold. It would be a used one uh, coming in 2032 and a second one in 2035. So Congress has approved the transfer of used boats, those first two, which should have 18 to 27 years of service, depending on which one is selected to be transferred um, the third would be a new build, uh, a new build boat, uh, delivered in 2038 with a full 33 lifespan, uh, 33 years. 
So SSN AUKUS, the goal is it would be built in the UK and Australia, but it would also use US technology in the platform itself. And Australia has agreed as part of this agreement to uh, allocate $3 billion to the U.S. submarine industrial base to grow it, to help support that delivery of those subs. $3 billion for its own industrial base, and it's also said it will invest in the U.K. industrial base, although that number is still to be determined. So, I mean, how does this affect deterrence, and what is, what is the viewpoint on the U.S. and Australian side? And I'll kind of leave the U.K. side off just for sure. um, purposes of time here. Uh, but for the U.S., you know, this is the nuclear propulsion technology is its crown jewels, mm-hmm. and it's sharing those with Australia. Um, it provides significant military advantage. It's highly protected. It's only been shared with the U.K. before in the past. And so this is a big move uh, for considered by both Australia and the U.S. in terms of sharing that technology. But the issue is that the United States has a force goal of having at least 66 subs in the force, uh, these nuclear attack subs, maybe up to 72, but let's stick to 66. So today, the Navy's not at that goal. They're at 49. And actually, that number is going to fall because they didn't buy enough during kind of the strategic pause. Mm -hmm. So that number will fall to 46, according to plans, in 2030 and won't reach that goal until 2049 under the most optimistic assumptions. So this is a concern for some in Congress in the United States, is that why should we give away some of our subs when we can't reach our own goals? Um, some other issues are the build rate has fallen in the United States. It should be two a year for these Virginia class. Uh, recently, it's been as low as 1.2. It needs to get up to 2.33 to support AUKUS and not cause more significant shortfalls. There's also a huge maintenance backlog with these Virginia yeah. class. Uh, so there's a lot more boats in depot or awaiting depot. That number has gone from 12 to 18 over the past decade. And that takes boats out of the water that you need for operational and daily needs. So, I mean, the real questions are, will the sub build rate be able to be increased to support AUKUS? Uh, what happens if that build rate doesn't increase? Uh, you've also got the Columbia class, SSBNs, replacing the Ohio class, which is taking critical skills away right. from the Virginia class build. So, so the first kind of step has passed Congress, which allows the transfer of two Virginia class subs, although it assumes that there are presidential promises about meeting operational requirements and build rates before the transfer happens. Um, so that's that's kind of a a hurdle that will be passed at a later time. And left to well, I think, Carl, that there's a great interest here in the United States about getting its defense industrial complex sort of up and running again. And there was a, a recent strategy was released. I would imagine that this, this, the submarine plan is part of that. And it's probably a major sort of infusion into this um, effort to modernize, if you will, and, and really energize uh, what has become uh, a, uh, you know, a shadow of what it once was. And I, I hate to sound overly critical, but uh, the world has changed and, uh, and we're not catching up with it uh, quick enough. And I think we're all feeling that at this point. Uh, so it, it will be interesting. Um, I'll note that you're getting those boats and they may have maybe 10 years of life left in them. So hopefully there is a plan to replace them within that uh, timeline uh, as well. Uh, when that, uh, as you're, uh, as you look into the 2040s and 50s, uh, I would imagine. Carl, that's a great summary. I, yeah, I want exactly. to thank you. Uh, 
how do you want to go next? Do you want to go into Pillar 2? Uh, yeah, why don't we jump into Pillar 2? I think okay. that makes sense. Just so, Natalie, I guess you got Pillar 2? I sure do. Um, so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of AUKUS Pillar 2 capabilities themselves. Um, one of the things that I'm going to look at here is, is the uh, risk of escalation where Australia thinks that it may be able to escape okay. um, some of the credibility issues around nuclear deterrence and or um, by not having nuclear weapons itself. Um, so from my view, one of the key considerations for Australia as a non-nuclear armed state is a requirement for US extended nuclear deterrence assurances, where some of these non-nuclear AUKUS Pillar 2 advanced capabilities could contribute to counterforce and or countervalue missions. These weapons are generally accepted to sit above the nuclear threshold as they credibly threaten survivability of the adversary's nuclear forces or jeopardise high value political and social socio-economic targets inside the enemy's territory, threatening the state's connectivity and its ability to function normally. Some analysts such as Fabian Hoffman, Benjamin Zala and Andrew Futter have referred to these weapons as strategic non-nuclear weapons. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll refer to them as those AUKUS II pillar capabilities that could contribute to counterforce and or countervalue missions. I acknowledge that there are some other terms for these weapons, including conventional prompt, global strike, strategic conventional weapons, advanced conventional weapons, asymmetric capabilities, kinetic and non-kinetic weapons, or long-range strike. However, some of these terms can be quite confusing, especially when no realistic asymmetry for these weapons can be achieved alone when faced with a nuclear-armed adversary. As a non-nuclear-armed state, nuclear escalation is of significance for Australia because we depend upon the US for US extended nuclear deterrence assurances. Hence, Australia and its AUKUS partners will need to consider nuclear escalation risks that some of these advanced capabilities may create and the need for nuclear deterrence as the ultimate backstop. It may also be worthwhile testing my hypothesis. That is, deterrence can be strengthened when these non-nuclear advanced capabilities with counterforce or countervalue missions are combined with nuclear deterrence. This combination of nuclear and non-nuclear capabilities could be the key to significantly reducing the risk of escalation to nuclear war. However, whether or not this is enough to prevent conventional war from breaking out altogether um, most likely requires some more thought. Since the inception of AUKUS, it has been unclear how these advanced capabilities will contribute towards deterrence and or their implications for deterrence. In 2021, the initial focus for AUKUS Pillar 2 was the trilateral collaboration to enhance the joint capabilities and interoperabilities of the three nations. In the areas of advanced cyber, artificial intelligence and autonomy, quantum technologies and additional undersea capabilities. This was further expanded in 2022 to include four more areas, hypersonic and counter-hypersonic capabilities, electronic warfare, innovation and information sharing. But it wasn't until December 23 when the three defence ministers revealed that AUKUS Pillar 2 contributes to integrated deterrence by pursuing layered and asymmetric capabilities that promote increased security and stability. Yet the detail about how these capabilities will increase the security and stability is thinly dispersed across think tank articles on the internet. In the absence of this detail from official AUKUS channels, I'll go through some published examples of how these advanced capabilities, when unhinged, could contribute to counterforce, countervalue missions and adversely impact strategic stability. So Peter Hayes describes counter-NC3 capabilities as those capabilities which threaten the resilience of nuclear command, control, communication, that is NC3 architecture, 
including cyber attacks on systems and interference with satellites providing strategic level communications, plus infrared early warning and other remote sensing satellites used for keeping tabs on each other's nuclear forces. Benjamin Zala describes how ballistic missile defence, conventional precision strike, anti-satellite weapons and anti-submarine weapons can be used to compromise an adversary's nuclear capabilities when they're combined with an in enabling platforms such as elements of cyber, artificial intelligence and quantum technology. Jennifer Jackett also hinted at the strategic stability problem that is associated with hypersonic missiles in her 2022 United States Study Centre report titled Laying the Foundations for AUKUS, Strengthening Australia's High-Tech Ecosystem in Support of Advanced Capabilities, where she pointed to the US Congressional Research Service report um, which posed some good questions for Congress when reviewing the Pentagon's plans for US hypersonic weapons program. This included the rationale for hypersonic weapons, as in what missions will these weapons be used for, their expected costs and their implications for strategic stability and arms control. However, it's worth noting or keeping in mind that the strategy objectives of Russia, China, North Korea and Iran cannot be improved through more talks, diplomacy or arms control. Considering the stated implied or undefined missions of these advanced capabilities, we can start to have a quick look at some potential nuclear escalation risks for Australia as a non-nuclear armed face when faced with a nuclear armed adversary. Some initial thoughts on strategic stability include a counter force and or counter value attack through these nuclear advanced capabilities cannot be enough of a disarming and or disabling slash neutralising first strike on an enemy's first and second strike nuclear capability and therefore risk retaliation by second strike. For example, when non-nuclear armed hypersonic missiles are the most difficult aerial threats to counter and even if you had many of them at significant financial cost and with substantial supply chain risks, they're unlikely to have sufficient destructive power to be a disarming first strike on targeting dilemmas such as the PRCs, missile silos. Given PRC submarines would survive this enemy attack and provide credible second strike deterrent capability in accordance with Wallstead's six attributes, that is reliable, affordable, sustainable, survive enemy attack, make and communicate the decision to retaliate, reach enemy territory with enough fuel to complete mm -hmm. the mission, penetrate the enemy's active defences and destroy the target despite passive defences. Secondly, similarly, the notion of cyber mad, which is mutually assured disablement in a counterforce and or countervalue mission, may become immediately redundant against a nuclear armed adversary that can threaten preemptive first strike or retaliatory second strikes without credible general and extended nuclear deterrence. This point aligns with Thomas Schelling's point. It's not the balance, but the sheer equity or symmetry in the situation that constitutes mutual deterrence. It is the stability of that of the balance. The balance is only stable only when neither in striking first can destroy the other's ability to strike back. And thirdly, a non-nuclear armed state cannot reliably and credibly contribute to counterforce missions through non-nuclear weapons against a nuclear armed state without credible extended nuclear deterrence as it instantaneously risks escalation to nuclear war by threatening an enemy's first and second strike nuclear capability. Recently we had an example where in the Australian Defence magazine last year, published an article on leveraging the space domain, stating that Australia is only one of two countries in the world that has the technology and the capability to neutralise satellites in numbers rapidly. However, the article gave no indication of what that meant for strategic stability from Australia's perspective and or what role extended nuclear deterrence would need to play. These points highlight the role of nuclear deterrence for non-nuclear weapons to be able to reliably and credibly 
execute counterforce and or countervalue missions without escalation to nuclear war. AUKUS partners will need to explore in depth these escalation risks that are associated with specific capabilities and their missions. And it touches on one of Carl's views that there's a need for scenario and or capability-based planning to test such assumptions. It's possible for these shiny new toys in old cupboards to fill perceived credibility gaps in nuclear deterrence. However, I'm prepared to hypothesise that it's only when these advanced non-nuclear capabilities are combined with nuclear deterrence will they then strengthen nuclear deterrence. Australia and its AUKUS partners will need to consider the role of US extended nuclear deterrence and the background to fill credibility gaps. This could be challenging for AUKUS partners with the attrition of nuclear deterrence experts through the peace dividend, as Brian Bender described it in Politico last year. Decades of peace have resulted in a dearth of people trained to deal with the continuing threat of nuclear war. This is on top of Australia's own lacking nuclear deterrence expertise, as Christine has previously pointed out to me. Australia hasn't had to think too hard in the past about nuclear escalation, at least not since prior to the fall of the Soviet Union with Paul Dibb's 1981 article, Threat to Australia's Security, the Nature and Probability Report to the Australian Parliament. Dibb considered whether Australia would be a target in general or nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. Australia's reliance upon extended nuclear deterrence has also meant that it has been able to remain at arm's length from theorising and practising nuclear deterrence. This lacking Australian expertise could be quite dangerous for the world if it led to deliberate inadvertent or accidental escalation. The AUKUS partners will need to generate the nuclear deterrence expertise and deep thinking individually within their own countries and collectively in order to counter the risk of nuclear escalation. Australia will need to face the reality that it cannot avoid nuclear deterrence as being the ultimate backstop. Nuclear deterrence will need to be factored into the equation when integrating these potential counterforce and or countervalue missions in joint operational doctrine and concepts. And it will also be interesting to see how Australia, as it looks to AUKUS II capabilities, views its future requirements of US extended nuclear deterrence and assurances. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating review. and Thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate it. I, I I have so many interesting, uh, I think they're interesting questions in regard to this. You mentioned in one of your writings here that that you and and Robert uh, Eisen uh, argued that a world with missiles, but that but without nuclear weapons. So we could presume that to be, you know, conventionally armed hypersonic missiles, for example, could be more, uh, much more thinkable while less destructive, maybe more likely. I think it was an interesting observation uh, without the fear of nuclear escalation, war seems to be more likely, uh, and certainly the potential to grow um, beyond that. And and your uh, the the nuclear escalation pillar two effort here, where we seem to be trying to substitute hypersonic weapons for to to sort of alleviate this this allergy towards nuclear weapons that exists in 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 Australia, for example, certainly in New Zealand. Um, and in other areas out there that really, I think, presents a challenge here because even if you have a, a, a nest of hypersonic weapons in, you know, in your country, they're going to be strategic targets for the adversary, right? They're going to want to take those out first. And so how do you store them? They become your most critical warfighting asset, if you will, your strategic threat, your deterrent threat. And, uh, you know, you got to bury them in silos. 
uh, you know, put them on trucks and hide them in mountains uh, deep in the deserts. Uh, you know, uh, uh, different. Th- you do have a lot of space to work with, but it is something to consider. I, I think so. Uh, well, the, you know, the country's big, but the deeper you you drive that to get away from the adversary's targeting, the farther you know, the the less risk or less capability you have to hold them at risk, right? So that's uh, that's right. a uh, I think a challenge that still has to be uh, still has to be argued. Um, Christine, let me ask you: um, What are your thoughts on extended nuclear deterrence, and and what American extended deterrence brings to this fight as you look at Pillar One and Pillar Two? Yeah, um, I think I mean I, I've got a little spiel, and um, I think so. Both Natalie and Carl have made some really great points here, especially thinking about the kind of nitty-gritty aspects yep. of the pact, like the need to discuss the operational aspects of deterrence and extended deterrence. Um, but I think more broadly, what I'm interested in is AUKUS as a concept in sort of the broader framework of alliance theory. So, in okay. yeah, in March 23, uh, Biden stated that for the first time ever, it will mean three fleets of submarines working together across both the Atlantic and the Pacific, keeping our oceans free, open, and prosperous for decades to come. Now, I know AUKUS is not an alliance in the formal sense, but as Natalie picked up uh, on the recent linking of AUKUS to deterrence of potential adversaries is an interesting new twist because it fits into a discussion about extended deterrence, something that's been only a vague and distant concept for countries like Australia who were never at the front line of the Cold War. Um, So what I want to talk about briefly is some of the conceptual challenges of deterrence in a maritime context and how to think about any deterrent benefits that AUKUS might bring. Um, So extended deterrence has been a central tenet of most of America's post-World War II alliances. Uh, And like during certain moments during the Cold War, that security guarantee is being seriously challenged both in Europe and the Asia-Pacific. Europe was and remains one single geostrategic entity connected by land. So collective deterrence was relatively easy in terms of, you know, troop deployments and tripwise and so forth. Whereas in the Asia-Pacific, Japan, South Korea, Australia and Taiwan are significantly more dispersed and separated by long sea lines of communication with with neutral and non-aligned states dotted between them, countries like Indonesia, Malaysia. Philippines. In Western Europe during the Cold War, NATO and its commands, committees, and planning groups were established, Um, and secret and national debates raged on the credibility of U.S. security assurance and how various military concepts, such as Second Strike and damage limitation, would deter the Soviets and reassure allies. How many nuclear weapons were enough? Where should they be deployed? What are the appropriate mix of target sets in terms of, again, counter-force, counter-value? Hello, we're not having those conversations today. How did different countries conceive of intra-war deterrence, war termination, and a theory of victory? What about command and control, as Natalie picked up on? And, you know, these, were, these questions were debated constantly. But the U.S.-led hub-and-spokes system, alliance system in the Asia-Pacific, is fundamentally different to NATO. Yeah, uh, unable to forge a Northeast Asian equivalent to NATO at the onset of the Cold War, the US opted instead for the hub-and-spokes architecture, where the spokes 
radiated out from Washington in a network of asymmetrical ties reinforcing American regional dominance. So allies in this region haven't had the same experience in learning around concepts of deterrence. But they're going to think about some of those hard questions that NATO had to grapple with, including what, what Natalie and Carl have brought up about perceptions, escalation risks, again, counterforce and counter-value targeting. Um, and to some extent, you know, me being the kind of history and strategic theory concepts nerd, to some extent, there's a broader piece here about the nature of US power projection. Um, Historically, the foundation of power projection has been sea control. And what contributed to making the US such a decisive power in, the, in Asia over the last 80 years has been a robust sea control capacity with low risk and therefore little cost. The modern concept of sea control has its origins in the writings of Mahan. For Mahan, sea control was about naval superiority, the concentration of forces, and decisive battles. It's the condition in which one has freedom of action to use the sea for one's own purposes, in specified areas, and for specified periods of time, and where necessary to deny or limit its use to the enemy. So sea control is different from sea denial. So sea denial is you want to limit your adversary's capacity to use the sea, but you're not controlling the entire sea. Um, and I think right now, and I think since the early 2000s, it's far from clear who has sea control in Asia. And I think there's going to be a much more serious discussion about, between the AUKUS partners, what sea denial versus sea control looks like, not only in terms of raw maritime power, like surface combatants, submarines, etc., but from an all-domains perspective. Um, I think AUKUS should consider the difficulties of conventional deterrence in a maritime environment as vast as the Asia-Pacific, like from allied perceptions of deterrence, escalation, concepts of operations, regional sensitivities, access basing and overflight issues, all-domain C4ISR, and the sheer logistical challenges of power projection in the region, including issues sure. like fuel. How often do we think about fuel? Like, <laughs> um, so I think AUKUS is an interesting concept um, in terms of international relations, history, and strategic studies. But I think there's a lot of work in implementing something this novel in military history. Okay, so we, we yeah, I go think, ahead, Carl. I think. I was going to say, I think Christine brings up some really good points here, which is AUKUS is technology sharing, but what's come along with it is a lot of force rotation of U.S. forces to Australian territory. And that includes not just nuclear submarines. It includes B-52s to the north. It includes increased rotations of Army and Marine forces to Australian locations. And how do you support those forces and what are the implications of that for Australia in terms of extended nuclear deterrence? Because should things kick off in the region here and nuclear threats are made, those forces could be targeted, uh, just like Guam could right. be. So how do you think about extended nuclear deterrence and what assurances Australia needs as part of this partnership uh, that's growing over time? 
I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and we've talked about this in the past and a couple of different things. And I think China wants to believe or at least wants the world to believe that this is an alliance or the bud, you know, some, some sort of new alliance. And uh, and so that is going to be uh, something that I think is going to be in, uh, probably a narrative that's that's inevitably going to survive, whether we like it or not. And uh, and then the the other challenge here is this this the nuclear question, right? And and I don't think Australia is the only ally that's really got to think about, this, especially in the Taiwan question. What is the role of American nuclear uh, extended deterrence, and how long? How will an adversary uh, take to receiving to being on the receiving end of a nuclear of a small nuclear Chinese nuclear weapon uh, because they're trying to target an American air base that's utilizing their space? I think this is a question for Australia as well. And so then it comes down right really to these two options. And I made a note on Christine's and uh, Natalie's wonderful paper here, which is you really have two options, right? Which is to rely on the Americans or to develop your own. And uh, and so this is always a challenge. But here we see even South Korea, who is just very recently saying, we're really looking at building our own nuclear weapons. President Noon just recently said, we're not going to do it. Why? Because the economic hit is too much. He's more afraid of becoming a pariah within the Western world for, for proliferating than he is actually fighting his North Korean adversary. And I think that is an interesting um, idea that who's coercing who in this world? <laughs> and when we look at from an Australian perspective, where is that? You know, so, so you're dipping your toes into the nuclear world with the AUKUS Pillar 1. How long will it take before that next question happens? And then I think the last thing I want to throw out here is we wrap up because I'm fascinated by this question. There are many, there's a lot of pressure on your, on the Australian government right now to sign off on the Treaty uh, for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. And uh, what happens if Australian leadership succumbs to that and signs off on that uh, and what it means to extend a deterrence essentially wipes it out. And uh, by, uh, and so I think that as AUKUS grows within the Australian government, there needs to be an awareness that that is something they probably can't get engaged in, uh, at least as far as that. What are your thoughts on that, Christine? Oh, uh, yeah. I remember going to a UN RevCon a while ago, and there were ICANN was distributing these pamphlets about nuclear weasels, <laughs> right. about countries like Australia, uh, and, and the NATO allies, you know, oh, you know, they benefit from sure. extended deterrence, but, and they're, they're kind of saying they will sign the treaty, but they might not. Like, oh, they're weasels. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think it's an interesting conundrum. I think in principle, culturally, you know, in an ideal world, Australia would support the elimination of nuclear weapons, but also there's a reality... And I think it's a reality shared by the U.S. I mean, the, the the idea of eliminating nuclear weapons is a nice one, but how do you do that when you have conventional imbalances that remain? I mean, it's mm -hmm. nuclear weapons are but one part of an overall military package, right? Yeah. Right. right. Um, so I, I don't see any for the near future Australia ratifying the treaty prohibiting 
nuclear weapons for the simple reality that to 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 whatever extent it believes that it needs to rely on U.S. extended nuclear deterrence. Okay. And and I would argue that we've seen a world without nuclear weapons. It's pretty nasty. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I was going to add something to this, which is, you know. Yeah, please do. There's a whole South Pacific regional aspect to this, which is nuclear testing in the South Pacific has been a major issue for not Australia a little bit, but more so the Pacific Islands. And so Australia not only is a party to the non-proliferation pact, but also to the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. Um, That's right. So so that is actually a consideration for Australia living with its neighbors and being a good neighbor as well. Um, so, right. So that is a consideration right. there, but it depends on the strategic situation, of course. Right. So, Natalie, let me ask you as we uh, wrap things up here. Do you, in your opinion, do you think that uh, non-strategic weapons such as that have consequences such as a hypersonic, for example, that might have a counter value and a counter counter force capability do, do you think that it will suffice to be this uh this deterrent um and if so how many do you think you might need um in order to create a threat that the chinese would actually respect uh or or is it really just come down to we're, we're just going to have a, a few of these toys and and then rely on the on the yanks uh and their nuclear threat my personal view is that we'd need many yeah. of these things. I still don't think that they would be enough. I mean, it's almost uh, fait accompli when you uh, look at the uh, the threat sure. um, altogether in terms of uh, that denial piece um, right up front with the China problem. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, we could always put nuclear tips on them and maybe we'd oh, have a there chance. we go. <laughs> Oh, well, fantastic. Well, it's it's time. Uh, we got to wrap things up. Adam always says we got to stay within the drive time of the D.C. area. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that's a lot longer than 37 minutes. But, uh, well, here we go. So, anyway, I want to thank you all for being here. I think the AUKUS discussion is, is incredible. It really needs more than just one podcast. So, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this again. But, uh, you know, the value between the, the American and Australian relationship, I think, um, not only is it just historical, but it is just something that I, neither one of us can do without, in my opinion. And uh, and I'm I'm so I'm, I'm actually really excited that AUKUS has come around, that it is it is strengthening these uh, these uh, this relationship, even with the UK, which is, you know, sort of. Um, uh, has, I guess, in my opinion, a little less interest in the Indo-Pacific than it used to, <laughs> since Hong Kong isn't in their, isn't in their possession anymore. But, uh, and, and yeah, I, I understand why the French should be a little upset. Look, the Brits, the, the Brits <laughs> but, uh, have got a chip you know, on their shoulder. That like, like, oh, can we have the empire back? I'm like, no, you can't. <laughs> oh, there we go. Oh, don't get an Aussie started on the Brits. Okay. Hey, look, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank you, the listeners, for being here. I really appreciate it. I hope this was a special treat for you as it was for me. And as always, uh, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, 
our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.